We're going to go to Acts chapter 2 um, this morning, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at the last six verses of this chapter, starting at verse 42, um, and we're going to talk today about essential behaviors. Now, when I was in my teens and, and 20s, I would go skiing pretty regularly. We, we, I, we had um, you know, family outings and things like that, and we would uh, enjoy skiing. And so I had my own skis and my own boots and, and all that stuff. So we weren't just casual skiers. We skied pretty well. And of course, if you've ever learned to ski, skiing can be a little bit tricky to learn. You know, you can feel like, oh, I got this. And then the next minute you're like in a tree, you know, like it can get, it can get dicey flying down a hill. Getting uh, on a lift, first time that you get on a chairlift to go up to the top of the mountain can be rough. <laughs> you know, this chair is coming at you and you're on these unsteady skis and you're trying to make sure that you uh, are seated well enough to be lifted up 15 feet in the air or whatever and travel up to the top of the hill. But once you think, oh good, I got it, then you come to the top of the hill and you've got to get off the ski lift, which is more of an act of faith than probably any other act I've ever done in my life you know, just sliding down with this chair chasing you and stuff. So it can get kind of scary. And I remember, um, probably I was 19, something like that, and I went, we went on a ski trip with my, it was just my brother, me, and, and a couple of his friends. We went up to this mountain that we went to often, and we went to this mountain because it was relatively cheap. Um, and the mountain had uh, a trail that kind of went straight down the mountain. I mean, it wasn't like a cliff, but it was like a straight path. But then there were these paths from the top of the mountain that came over and intersected with this straight one. It kind of made a K. Uh, it went, intersected and then it went back this way, which is all well and good because you could go down the straight one or you could go down this, this uh, bent one. But if you were going down the straight one and you decided that you would like to finish your run by going down the other side of the K, you could do that. Or if you started on the K, you could finish by going down, which made this intersection a little bit dicey. Now, as a 19-year-old, I did not realize this. I just thought, this is easy. You just ski wherever you want. And it was very, very wide. So I was skiing, and I was, I was going pretty fast. My brother and I were racing. We started on the, the side of the K. We were kind of racing, so we were going full bore down this path. And we had decided that there was, a, there was kind of a, an easy finish line at the bottom of the straight path. So we were going to go from the top of the K, and they were going to go straight down that path. And, and we were motoring. My brother was next to me, and I'm skiing, and, and we're just about getting ready to come into that straight path. What he didn't realize was there was this nice lady who also decided that she was going to start on the straight path, but she was going to finish on the bent one. So, so she was going to come down the straight one and come like this while we were going down the bent one and going this way. My brother was right next to me. He was a little bit in front of me, which I hate to admit to you, but he was a little bit in front of me. I'm sure I was going to catch up. But she, I never saw her. She came across in front of my brother, and he was just blocking me just enough that I did not literally see her until she was right in front of me. And I was going full bore. And all of a sudden, there was nothing to do. I just took her right off of her skis, lifted her right out of her skis, we, I landed full on top of her on the snowbank. What do you say in a moment like that? <laughs> sorry. Like, I, you know, I'm sorry I just killed you. There, was, there, was, there were no words that you could say at that moment. And, and she, I checked to see if she was okay, and she wasn't. And then, you know, she kind of <laughs> got better and skied off. Of course, I blamed my brother for blocking my view. But life is a lot like that in that 
there are certain guidelines and, and, and pathways in life, basic principles that you have got to be aware of, that you've got to know, or else things get dicey really quick. You've got to understand, like a lot of schools just starting up. So a lot of us are just starting school. First day of school, you know, you got to find out where your classes are, where your desk is, what your homework's going to look like, what the teacher requires, all that stuff. You better know that or your report card after the first quarter is not going to look so good, right? When it comes back your way. Um, Driving, when you're driving down the road, you better know which side of the road you need to drive on, right? And you need to know what happens at a four-way stop and what, what yellow means, by the way, yellow does not mean stomp on it, just so you know. <laughs> yellow is, you know, caution, be careful, that kind of stuff. So we need to know some of these rules and some of these basics. If you want to live healthy, you probably need to pay attention to what you're eating and what you're doing. There are some healthy behaviors you need to embrace. And if you don't embrace them, they don't do you any good. In other words, if I just acknowledge mentally, you know what, I should eat right, and I probably should exercise. So I believe that I should eat right and I should exercise. Has that helped me? When does it help me? When I believe it enough to do it, right? And so there, it's more than just giving a mental assent. Yes, I, I agree with that. That's true. It is actually acting on these things. That's why I call today essential behaviors. If you ignore some of these essential behaviors or you just don't know them, you can very soon find yourself flying through the air on a ski slope, bracing for impact, right? And you're like, where did this come from? Well, it came from the fact that there were some basics that you just didn't know. Lots of potential for damage and injury. But my heart for you today is this. Not just damage and injury. I'm not just trying to keep you safe. I think when we miss out on essential behaviors, we miss out on everything life could be. Things that God has for us and wants for us in this life that we just don't get. And we don't even realize we don't get them. We think life is like this when life could be like this, but we've never tasted life like this because we've never done the things that are essential to a Christian life. So essential behaviors in life, there are essential behaviors in church too. Let's say that you want your children to grow up to know and love Jesus, to follow him all the days of their lives, to trust in him, to have faith in him, and to have eternity in heaven. What are essential behaviors that feed into that? Well, I don't know. I just pray, I guess. Is there nothing you can do on a regular basis that will help feed your children into that kind of relationship later on? I think there is. I think when we get together on Sunday morning at church and the kids get together in a classroom to learn, I think faithfulness there feeds into a relationship with Christ. On Sunday night, we have a youth group for our teenagers. Do you want your teenagers to have a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ that fuels their lives from this point on as they make decisions? And man, in the next few years, they are making life-changing decisions, where they're going to go to school, what they're going to do with their life, who they're going to date, who they're going to marry, where they're going to live. In like the next 10 years, they're making all these decisions, right? Would you like Christ to be a part of that? Would you like Christ to be the foundation of that? Well, then what essential behaviors can you perform? Can you be engaged and involved in that guarantee that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Let's just ask you about you. Your life, do you want to live spiritually healthy, alive? Do you want to have a a spiritual life that that is vibrant and flowing? Or do you want to kind of feel dead inside? Do you want to kind of feel like God is a million miles away? 
Are there behaviors, essential behaviors, that you need to participate in in order to fuel that and feed that? And so we're looking at this concept of who needs church. And what I'm saying is, do you actually see that you need it? Is it just nice? Is it a pick-me-up? Is it something that I can go to when I can go to, and that's good, and I'm glad that I do? Or is it absolutely necessary for you to be at church, to be connected to your church family? Do you feel the loss when you're not here? I am hoping over the next five weeks now to convince you that you miss out on so much When you miss out on church, when church is now and then, when church is when I feel like it, when church is like something nice, but not something I can fit into my schedule, when you choose to make church optional, I feel like we miss so much. Now, last week, I mentioned introverts. We start talking about small group and you guys go into like seizure, like, oh no, I got to talk to people and know people and okay, I got you, I understand. Because I actually am an introvert too. I'm an outgoing introvert. So that's a weird, but it's the truth. I understand what it takes out of you to pour into relationships and be connected with people. But what I will say to you is you are not exempt from these essential behaviors. Your spiritual life suffers. If you just assume that you just can't be with other people, I understand connection could be costly, but what I'm saying to you is disconnection is more costly. It costs you more than you know and more than you understand. And if you're an extrovert, oh, I love people. I love to talk to people. I would like for you to make sure that your connections are healthy and and life-giving and spirit-filled and not just because you like to socialize. I'm saying as a church, I want to look at how a church operates. And so we're going to look at the church that was formed on the first day of church. Acts chapter 2 is the very first day of church. And it gives us a summary of what it looked like at the start and probably what it should look like today. So let's look at how the first church operated because if we want to understand how a church should work, this is a great place to start. And I'm saying as we read this, do we act this way? Is this the way we act? Is this how we do church? Do we think like this? Do we live like this? Or maybe bigger, what would happen if we did? What would happen if Hope Christian Fellowship, if every one of us dug into this and let God show us things, and then we said, I want to live like that. I want our church to be a place like that. I bet you we would notice, and I bet you it would be something amazing to see. So let's start. We're going to just start at verse 42, because this talks about here's where they give themselves to one another. And it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. So there's four things here that they talk about that that these people were involved in. Four essential behaviors. But it starts by using these words. And if you don't get anything else out of this morning, this question I hope rings in your heart all week long. It says, they devoted themselves. Would you use the word devoted to describe your relationship to your church family? Devoted. What does that mean, devoted? What does it say to you when we have that word, they gave themselves like this to their church family? Devoted. I would say that the norm is for people to wish they could be devoted, to think it would be nice if they could be devoted, but 
sorry, have so many other things in my life, can't be devoted. But these new believers devoted themselves. It is a choice. And the verb tense tells us they were continually devoting. It's an ongoing thing. In other words, it was a choice that they made day after day. They kept pouring fuel on this fire. They kept doubling down on devotion like this. This stuff that they were doing, they were like, yeah, we got to do this. Yeah, this is important. Yeah, this is core. This is essential. I can't get over this. I can't get away from this. I got to stay stuck on this. I'm devoted to this. It mattered to them in a really big way. It wasn't just a shoulder shrug and a, wow, that was a nice service, and hmm, I'm humming a tune all week. It was, this is life for me. Now, we could argue it was new and it was fresh, so, you know, it was kind of like that honeymoon phase where it was fascinating. But the action word of devoted themselves tells us that they chose it again and again. If you've ever been in a dating relationship where you were, you know, infatuated and and you fell in love and it and it kind of just blew up inside of your soul and you were just overwhelmed with how much how wonderful this person was and how you couldn't get your head off of their relationship with them right did anybody know that feeling anybody ever been there no never it's been too long okay (laughs) pretend you know that feeling all right and then you build a relationship with them and you get married And it's other things that start to crowd into your mind. And and life, you know, you kind of take that for granted. It kind of goes into the background. What I always talk about when we talk about marriage relationship is you have to choose the priority of this relationship. You have to choose to pour into it. You have to choose behaviors that build it up, that feed it, that put fuel on the fire. And if you don't, guess what happens? It dies. It's not because God didn't want it. It's not because you fell out of love. It's probably because you stopped doing the essential behaviors in that relationship and the fire went out. With church, it's very much the same thing. Maybe when you first got saved, it's like, oh, I can't read the Bible enough. Oh, I can't talk about God enough. Oh, I can't pray enough. And then time goes by and you're like, oh, I hate my job. And why can't I pay my bills? And my family is so weird. And, you know, you're just kind of like going around. You're just distracted with all this other stuff. And like the stuff about God, the fire starts to go down. What's the answer about when the fire goes down? Well, you just go like, well, that's normal. That's what happens. I love the evangelists in marriage that come to you like, you know, the people who've been married for 20 or 30 years and a new couple's all like, oh, we're so in love. And you're like, you'll get over it. Like, don't you love that? What an encouragement, you know? Real powerful lead there, right? What are you doing? You are setting a tone that what we should settle for in marriage is like mediocre marriage. Are you kidding me? How about you feed it a little bit? How about you take those who are freshly in love and take it as a challenge for you to get back to some of those essential behaviors that fuel the fire inside of you? And in church, how about instead of saying all those new believers, well, they'll calm down after a little bit, you use that as a challenge to say, I love the Lord like that too. And I want to have that passion inside of me too. And maybe it's not so easy today as it was when it first happened, but I get to choose it just like these believers chose to devote themselves. They did these things in devotion. And I want to emphasize this too. They did these things together. This was not a bunch of individuals running around bouncing off the walls. This was a group of people that chose to get together regularly. Many of the things we're going to talk about, you can do alone, and they could have done by themselves. And they probably did those things by themselves as well. But they were devoted, in this verse, they were devoted to doing them together. There is something about doing stuff together that kind of gets diminished 
in this day. Like, it's okay. God's with me wherever I go. But these people in the early church were devoted to doing it together. What were they devoted to doing? Well, first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. In other words, they talked. To, there were these men who had spent time with Jesus, and they would get up in front of groups of people, and they would say, this is what the Lord had said. This is what happened. This was the story. This is, this is how it went down. And this is what he said when this happened. And this is what he taught us about that thing. And they would pass on what Jesus had said to them. So they would listen. They devoted themselves because Jesus had gone back to heaven. They were listening to his representatives tell them the story and teach them the truth. Today, we don't have apostles walking around, but we still have the apostles' teaching. We're actually reading it right now. This is the apostles' teaching. Matthew and John, right? And, and Peter and Paul and James and Mark. Like all of these people who gave us the story, wrote it down for us. So today, devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching would be devoting yourself to learning the truth from the word of God. It would be the New Testament that we, have, we hold in our hands. Would you say you're devoted to that? And by the way, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they weren't just about reading it themselves. They weren't just about figuring it out for themselves. They were about coming together to learn together. So you can learn on your own. You can dig in. You can study and you read, and you should do that. But the point here is they came together to learn together. Do you realize God has designed us as a church, to learn together. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Some things in your life, you're only going to get when you do it together. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes there's a moment in like a small group and you're studying something and you're talking about something and there's a truth that's bouncing around. And suddenly, somebody says something that triggers a thought in your brain that you would have never had unless that discussion was happening in front of you right then. And it's the way the Spirit of God uses us to learn together. That's something I don't want you to miss out on. And that's something God designed for us so that we'd be interconnected and we would learn together. How did he do that in a, in a big gathering? Well, he gave people gifts. And he said, I want you to use these gifts. So God gives people a gift like of teaching. And I'm going to get up and use that gift. And that's not any credit to me. Just because I get to stand up here and you get to look at me on Sunday morning doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody here. What it means is God's called me to this act of service. So I'm going to do this act of service. This is a representation that God chose for us to not be fulfilled alone. He chose for us to be complete and whole and growing and vibrant in connection in church as we get together. And so I pour these gifts out and you pour other gifts out. There are people who have the gift uh, in music to pour out truth to you in a different way and you get a blessing and you get something from that. There are people with the gifts of hospitality and the gifts of mercy. And as you talk before the service and after the service, those gifts get poured out. And so we learn as we are in community, as we are together. And sometimes it is the only place God has the answer for us. Maybe your life is overwhelming. It's just filled with challenges. It's filled with struggles. It's filled with strain. What if God's designed answer for you is only going to be found in the connection of church family? What if the ache in your soul of I don't know what to do this is God's way of inviting you to be connected to your church family? Wouldn't it stink if that burden was your excuse to not be connected with the family because I'm so overwhelmed and life is so hard and I don't know what to do and the answer 
is exactly where you won't go. Wouldn't that be a tremendous strategy for our enemy to turn us away from the things God wants for us? So maybe today, if you're feeling confused and lost, maybe if you're feeling like God's not speaking to you like he's a million miles away, maybe look at your together level. Where is it? Where's your devotion to that? Maybe God's reserving your answer for a together time. And it's scary. People are scary. I understand. Maybe you've already been down some of these roads and people hurt you. Absolutely. And the enemy would love to remind you again and again about how it can get hurtful to be in a church and to be putting your heart out there and to serve. I know more than you probably can imagine. I know how hard it is to trust people when, they, when people are the very ones who have stomped all over you. I know. But the enemy would like for that to be your reason to stay isolated and insulated. What I'm telling you today is what you need is connection. And what you think you need is the promise that would keep you from connection. Something that you know, is a false promise. Something that would say, what you really need is independence. You don't need anybody telling you what to do. What you really need is safety. You don't need anybody stomping on you. What you really need is rest. You're just so tired. What you really need is, and he's going to keep saying things that are not what you actually need. They just feel like what would answer your question. And how do you know? Well, you keep pursuing this thing, whatever it is, more independence, more rest, more whatever, but you never quite get there. That's the very earmark of a temptation and a lie. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second thing they devoted themselves to was fellowship. This word means sharing or partnership, as in we're doing this together. They devoted themselves to one another. We need one another, and so we're going to be together day after day. What this word fellowship talks about is friendship, knowing one another, caring about one another, helping one another. And we're going to talk more about, you know, when we find ourselves in need, how connection and the church is God's instrument to rise up and meet that need. But what we should see is this. We need church because each one of us misses out on some of the provision God has for us when we don't connect in fellowship, when we're not devoted in fellowship. But even more than that, when you're not here, if you're a part of this church family and you're not here, our church is missing essential pieces that God designed to do things that people, others can't do. Your relationships, your thought processes, your personality, your experiences. God's using you in the lives of other people. So if you come in and you wall off or you come whenever you want, we are missing you. And we are not as effective as a church family without you. We need you living, breathing, vibrantly connected to the church body. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Then it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread in the book of Acts refers to communion. They devoted themselves to actions, corporate actions, that expressed the truth, that reminded and refocused people on the truth that gave glory to God. There are lots of ways we do this besides just communion. We just finished doing it. We worship together. We lift up our voices and we sing together. There's something about, yeah, you can worship every day and you can turn on a a Christian radio station and hear songs or you can put in a CD or whatever. You can listen to worship music and you can pour your heart and worship. Absolutely. 
But I don't want to underplay this at all because I think this is a really big thing. There is something about worshiping together that is different than worshiping by yourself. And if you don't feel the lack, that should be a big red flashing light. If you don't feel the difference between worshiping by yourself and worshiping with people, you are probably really, really insulated from the things that are happening around you. Absolutely, you are to live as a living sacrifice every day, but we need corporate worship. There's something we get from lifting up Jesus' name together that we don't get alone. And there's something we accomplish together that we don't accomplish alone. And so they gave themselves, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to things that brought glory to God, that represented the truth, and that reminded one another and spoke to one another about the great God and the loving God that we serve and we've given our lives to. So the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. Last one is prayer. Prayer is simply the way we talk to the Lord, right? We talk to Him about our needs. And, and every single one of us should pray every single day. We should have a conversation with the Lord all the time. No doubt about it. But this prayer is together prayer. This prayer is the body of Christ coming together and agreeing on some things. And lifting them up in their hearts together. So at the end of worship, I get up here and pray. Or at the end of community, I'm going to get up here and pray. What is corporate prayer? Here's corporate prayer. As I'm praying, you're in your soul hearing what I'm saying. And you're going, yeah, that, Lord, do that. You know, I'll say some, sometimes I'll say, you know, help us to turn away from, yeah, help me to turn away. Help all of us turn away. Yes, like there's agreement there. It's not just a time to close your eyes and gather your thoughts about your grocery list. It's a time for us to focus on communicating with God together. And so there is this function of corporate prayer. We agree on things together. We we join together for needs and, and we say, God, here's a need we're bringing before you as a family. You know, someone in the church had a tragedy or sickness or a heartache or a burden and we mention it and we pray for them and we pray for them together. There's something about that. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Certainly some of worship is prayer. Sometimes we, we're talking to the Lord and as we lift our voices together, we do that. But we pray before the service. You know, we have a prayer huddle back here for all of our workers, our greeters, our kids at, at 20 of 9 every single Sunday morning. And what do we do? We join hands together. We stand in a circle and we bow our heads and we pray together. We pray for you as you come to this service, that God would be moving in your life and preparing your heart. We pray for us, that God would use us and get us out of the way. We pray together. There's something powerful about that. And it's said that they did it every single day. They met every day in like this. They, they over and over and over again did this. Why did they do it like this? Because they understood these behaviors to be essential to the Christian life, doing them together. And so what if what's missing in your spiritual well-being starts with being devoted like the first church was? In other words, maybe you're very aware of some hole in your soul, some emptiness inside of you, and you're wondering what it is. Maybe it's that you're around, but you're not devoted. Maybe you're held back. Maybe you're guarded. Maybe there are some wounds you need to address. Maybe there's some forgiveness you need to offer. Maybe there's something blocking you. But you need to be devoted to the together. And you're not. And you're not for very good reasons. But you're going to feel it in your soul 
when we're missing out on the together stuff that God wants to give you? What, are, what if we're missing out on both what we could be giving and what we could be receiving? All right, so because they were devoted, then we get this description of what real church life was like. So verse 43 down to verse 46, here's what it says. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So these are the kind of like, this is what church looked like. It, it looked like this, I believe, not just because it was the first church, just because it, right around the day of Pentecost, I believe it looked like this because they were devoted to this. And so it starts with power on display. The apostles are doing miracles. They're healing people and they're you know, speaking in tongues and all kinds of signs and wonders are getting happening. And so there's power on display. But have you ever thought about the impact of community on what God is doing? Like, here's what I mean. If God is doing incredible things through somebody, but nobody's around to see it, does that have an impact? Do you know what I mean? In other words, the fact that they were devoted to being together, when the apostles did these things, there were lots of people around to see the glory of God. Now, you might underplay the value of you coming on Sunday morning and sitting in a seat and worshiping with us, but I'm telling you, have you ever walked into an auditorium or a church service where there were just like five people? Does that say something to you? Have you ever walked into an auditorium where there's a bunch of people, but they all look like somebody just stole their cat? Like everybody's like, uh. There's an impact on how you show up and if you show up. The fact that God's power is unleashed in this place is a great thing. But if nobody's here to see it, or if we diminish it by our response to it, or by our opting out of it, we have a part in the fact that God's power and glory is not fully expressed and fully seen by the people God wants to see it. They're up here playing along, singing along, and you're just standing there like, you know, I'd rather be anywhere but here. You're saying something loud and clear. And I will tell you, you don't think you realize this. Down the road from you, behind you, in front of you, is probably someone whose life is really, really hard right now. And you just think they look nice, they smell nice, they have their hair in place, so they must be okay. And what I do is not going to have any impact on them, but I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I came to church and the person in front of me was singing their heart out and it drew me in past my problems, past my issues, and it set me free. They didn't say what was happening up on stage. They said what was happening in the pew in front of me or the person next to me. They came over to me and they said, how you doing? And I said, not really good. And they put their arm around me and we prayed together. Don't underplay your role in the body of Christ when we are together, right? So everybody came out and was in all the, the signs of the, the apostles. Man, the apostles were great. If only we had the apostles today. Well, guess who we do have today? Not the apostles. We have the Holy Spirit, right? And because of that, those same powerful works of God can be done in us, through us. Not so much so that people are like, wow, look at that healing and stuff, but so that God, that God can be expressed through every single one of you in a way that is powerfully moving. 
Where is our devotion and passion so that others will look in? Because you know it, and I know it, where people are excited, other people want to come and be a part of that. And that starts at devoted, doesn't it? So if you've been like sitting off to the sidelines and, you know, I'm just licking my wounds and whatever, how about now we get devoted? Well, what if that, what if we do that? How about if we step up to devoted now? Then it talks about all believers had everything together. They sold property and possessions for anyone who had need. We're going to dig into this more in a couple weeks. And this isn't communal living where everything belongs to everyone. This is sacrificial living where someone sees someone else because they know them, because they've talked to them, because they prayed for them. And they say, you know what? God, I can let go of what I have so that they can have what they need. How cool would it be to be a part of a place like that? Do you think that people would go, you know, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites if all we were obsessed with was meeting one another's needs? You think people would be turned off like, oh, you're always holier than thou if what we were willing to do is sell what we had so that someone in need could have what they needed? Maybe we're not real devoted. Maybe we need to get back to that. And we're not going to get back to it if we can't get past, I'll come when I feel like it. I'll come when it's convenient. I'll come when I can make some time. It says, every day they continue to meet together in temple courts, breaking bread in homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts. And so we see this reference to daily, not, not just once a week for one hour, but daily. They couldn't get enough of each other. They stayed in connection with each other. Maybe we should open up the church every single day and you should be here every single day. Maybe we should show up on Sunday first, <laughs> Right? Like what I'm saying is this, maybe the the next step for you is not every single day, but maybe it's more than what you've been doing. And so we're going to talk about small group this month because we're going to say Sunday morning is a good start, but let's do more. Let's stay connected. Let's be intentional. And there are many ways for us today to stay connected. Are we intentionally being connected with our church family, bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ like we talked about last week? And that has an effect. And here's the effect it had on them. They broke... Uh, bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Here's the effect it had. They had joy. Could anyone use some joy? Sound appealing to anyone? How did they get there? They devoted themselves to their church family, and it filled them with joy. Because relationships are God's designed feeder for our soul. And so if I exclude myself from God-given relationships, if I back up from them, I suck away the, the joy that I could have. And then I try to chase it in other things that don't require the same kind of connection because I'm scared of connection. But you won't find what God wants to give you in the church outside of the church. You will only find it in the connection that God has called you to. So they had joy, they had glad hearts, but they also had sincere hearts. And I love this word. Sincere heart means this, simple uncomplicated. Anybody could use a simple, uncomplicated heart. Literally, the word is free from rocks. A tender, soft field, ready for plowing, ready for planting. They had sincere hearts, free from rocks. I think if we looked at our hearts today, we'd have a lot of rocks. We got a lot of things in our soul that make us hard, that get in the way of what God might want to do inside of us. We've got all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems and all kinds of agendas swirling around in our head all the time. We're just not very simple. We're not very uncomplicated. But you know what getting together with your church family does? It reminds you what life's all about. 
It reminds you of the promises we have, of the Lord we have, of the Savior we serve. It reminds us of the hope we have in heaven and the reason we're here on earth and what matters and what doesn't matter. It reminds us of all of that because we get together and we sing and we get together and we pray and we get together and we learn and we get together and encourage each other. We're reminded that life is not all about today's problem. It's not all about today's weight. Life is about what God has for us in eternity, and everything today is pointing towards that. Certainly, the first church had plenty of problems coming at them. Um, Most of them knew that to follow Christ meant they could lose money, they could lose possessions, they could lose position, they could lose their life. And yet, they had glad and sincere hearts because of their devoted connection to one another. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in life, like life's coming at you too fast. Maybe the problem isn't that you need to simplify your life. Maybe the problem is that God will simplify your life if you will be connected to your church family. How about that? And last but not least, verse 47, there's impact to it. Not just within and not just for us, but outside of this. It says, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just really simple. When God does this in us, when we respond to the call of God to be connected to one another, it has an effect in us, and that effect spills outside of these walls. It says they had the favor of all the people. Because the church was devoted to one another, because they loved one another, they prayed together, they fellowshiped together, they learned together, because they did all this stuff together, because they cared for each other, it spilled out of these walls and into people around, and it says they had the favor of all the people. From what you understand, does the church today have the favor of all the people? Well, why not? Well, you know, the Roman society was just so much more upright and good and solid and godly. So baloney, if anything, the Roman society was worse than this one. They were more violent. They were more hedonistic, if you can believe it. And they were more racist, they were more divided, there was more uh, status and and stratification of incomes and society and class. They were, if anything, a worse society than this one. But what happens is, when the church is the church, the, the testimony of the work of God spills out of these walls and we have the favor of people. People are like, I don't know, I don't want to be one of them yet, but I like them. They're good people. And then the byproduct of that is God keeps adding daily to their number. People keep joining. People's eternities are changed. People come into the kingdom of God and they are saved and rescued and redeemed and forever a part of the family of God. Would it be cool if God was doing that here all the time? If people were coming in and they were finding hope in Jesus Christ and it was because we as a family, as a church family, were devoted to each other. What if the greatest strategy for evangelism isn't about production quality, isn't about fantastic programs? What if the greatest evangelism strategy isn't tied to a fancy building or entertaining topics or an entertaining speaker? What if evangelism rests on us being devoted to one another as the body of Christ? Ever thought about that? What if our effectiveness For the kingdom of God is about whether or not we love one another like Jesus called us to. And we're willing to be connected and devoted to one another. 
I pray that God's Spirit will stir this up in our hearts and that we as a church will grow in this because I think so much is at stake and I can't wait to see what God will do. One of the things we get to do together as a family is celebrate communion. So I'm going to ask you just to leave your stuff wherever it is to make your way around the edges of this room. Find a spot along the wall. Please try to make sure we're not more than one or two deep, especially in the corners. And we'll start the cups around. All right, so we're going to send the cups. As I said before, if you just want to observe, just pass those by without taking one. When they get to wherever they meet up and everybody's got a cup, you can just put them down on the seats, uh, on the blue seats, and we'll come get those after the service today. Paul teaches the Corinthian church about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, and I just want to read what he says Some of these are pretty familiar words, but I want you to notice in this, the implication, the understanding behind this is that we do this together. Here's what it says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, a lot of that's familiar. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We get that. The last phrase there is this. Whenever you do this, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What he says is this, and proclaim is the idea. You make it known to who? Look around the room. When we do this, there's a way that you remind everybody else and everybody else reminds you about the Lord's death for you. We do this together. As a matter of fact, when you get down to verse 33, he says this, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Isn't that crazy? It's right there in the word of God. You should all eat together. What is he saying by that? He said in the city of Corinth, it was, there were some people who were rich and some people were poor. And he's like, no, you should all eat together. So we're around the room today as a family. We're going to have this precious meal together. We're going to do it because we are the family of God. We're going to do it because our Lord died for us. Because we are here from His sacrifice for us. And when we talk about being devoted, I think what we're saying is, will we follow our Lord who was devoted to us? Will we follow the example of our Lord? So we're going to take this bread. As the bread comes around, you're going to have to rip off a piece This is his body broken for you, devoted to you. As the juice comes around and pours in your cup, this is my blood poured out for you, my devotion to you. Let's declare, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gentlemen. Our Lord said, take this bread and this cup, do it in remembrance of me.
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for inviting us to this table, to your table. Certainly today in this symbolic way, as we have this bread and drink this juice, it reminds us the sacrifice of your son. But thank you even more for inviting us to your table in a very real way, where your son gave his life for me and for each one of us. For what this represents and what this reminds us, Father, burn these things into our soul. I pray that you would do a work in us as a church that reflects the goodness of our Savior, the greatness of our God. Help us to devote ourselves the way that your Spirit asks us to, to one another. Make this place a reflection of your plan for your kingdom and your work in us. Now, Father, I pray you would use us this day and this week according to your will. We surrender to it and we look for your leading day by day. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.